welcome back to another episode of Gentle Man, Redefining Manhood in the 21st Century. My name is Arjuna, I'm one of your hosts, and I'm really excited to be joined today by a guest and an old friend of mine, Foster McEwen. Hello, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on here for a number of reasons. So Foster and I have known each other for probably, what, the last over a decade? Since 2008, so f- I think 15 years. Yeah, a long, a long time. And we've both been through a lot of transitions in that time, and Foster actually went through a transition, which we're going to be talking about today. Foster is also a trans man who has given birth to a child. And I just think that that's an important topic to discuss as well. So we're going to talk about that today. So just to give you a little sneak preview of uh, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. I'm really stoked to get into this conversation. And the first thing that I wanted to ask you, Foster, was give us a little history. How did you feel as a child? When did you start to notice, hmm, maybe the gender that I was assigned at birth doesn't describe who I am or how I feel? Yeah, that question is always really challenging, but it's good. It's it's a complicated answer, I guess. I'm not that old. I'm 34, but things have changed so drastically that I think I'm, I had a very different experience from people even five or 10 years younger than me. So I had no awareness of the existence of trans people growing up. That wasn't a word I was familiar with. I didn't know anyone that I knew was trans. It was just no part of that was on my radar as a possibility. Where It was sort of on my radar that some people were gay. I was aware that that was a thing that existed. But I didn't know that you might have a gender that might not match what, what you were assigned at birth. So for me, it was really complicated and very buried subconsciously. So I always had these really vivid imagination images in my head of monsters when I was a child. And it was more than just like afraid of the dark. And I always thought when I'm eight, I won't see these anymore. When I'm 12, I won't see these anymore. Definitely when I move out and I'm an adult, I won't have this, these scary monster experiences anymore. But I did and they never went away. And I always knew they weren't real, but they were so, so vivid, so present. And I remember every once in a while I would have these breakdowns and I would sort of like a panic attack, but really emotional. And I remember even like crying, like I'm a monster. I feel like there's something broken with me that will never fit, that I will never be happy, that there's something so wrong here. And I feel like the monster, but I couldn't tell you why, (laughs) what that was or where it was coming from. It was very like a geyser where it's just a little bit shooting out from something really big underneath. So that's kind of where it sat for a long time. And it confused my sexual orientation growing up because I was trying to figure it out with that as my only tool. So it's kind of hitting it with the wrong tool. So I thought maybe I'm a lesbian and I, you know, I dated a woman and then I kept dating men and I kept thinking, I guess I'm a lesbian who keeps dating men for some reason. And I was 24, I think, when um, I finally like had gotten out of a long relationship with a man and I went and had sex with a woman again for the first time in a very long time. And while it was lovely, I was expecting this big, oh, there it is, I'm a lesbian. And I didn't get that. I got a, that was fine. And I, it was this huge like, huh, that's not the answer I, I thought it was going to be. And at the same time, a friend of mine that I was, I'd already really clicked with came out to me as trans and I had no idea he was trans and he had transitioned a long time ago. 
totally passed. I had no clue. I also found out that he never comes out to people and he just kind of felt like he was supposed to come out to me and he didn't know why. And he started talking about his experience and I started realizing that things I had said for years were not normal things to, to say for like a cis person. For instance, when I got off birth control, like hormonal birth control, I remember thinking and saying, wow, I wish I could just have this much in the opposite direction, just like a little Instead of estrogen, maybe just a little testosterone, which I didn't think anything of that thought at the time. <laughs> That's interesting to me as well, how it almost sounds like it was a, yeah, somewhat of a visceral unconscious thought. Thinking through what having more testosterone in your system would even feel like maybe hadn't occurred to you yet. Yeah, exactly. And so getting off of that estrogen, that tiny estrogen dose, I, and felt, I felt like I was moving in this direction. And I was like, oh, I like this direction. Definitely. Yeah, very visceral, very in my body, which is very how I process everything. But um, yeah, so that was a big part of it. And then I started going, I was sinking into this depression, but everything in my life was looking good. And I didn't know what it was. And I just had this feeling like, there's something here I need to address. And I don't know what it is. And I started to feel as it grew, I felt like this thing is going to kill me before I even see its face. I don't even know what it is that is harming my soul. And I got to this point where I think I had to become more afraid that I wouldn't figure it out than, than I was afraid to look at it. And when I reached that point, I could see it. And I, and I had this like epiphany and I realized that this was a direction I wanted to go in. And it wasn't even like, I'm a man. It was like, I need to explore this. The, the answer is gender. Like that was the answer. It wasn't male. It wasn't man. It was the, the answer is you need to explore this, like your gender identity and, and moving into a masculine direction will make you feel good. And I felt as soon as it occurred to me, it was just like this huge relief. It was ecstasy and it's been great ever since. <laughs> it's been awesome. I really appreciate hearing this perspective of my whole life. I felt like there was more to me, but I just didn't, I didn't know what that meant. Whether you're trans and it hasn't fully come into your mind, or maybe even your, maybe your one temperament of person, like I'll talk about myself. I'm just a very sensitive man. And so I think for a while in my life, I either suppressed that or just didn't really acknowledge it. And I had some level of unconsciousness around people are treating me in these ways that I don't really like. Or maybe people are expecting behavior from me that I don't want to do. And so one of the things that I love hearing in your story so far is just how this is an exploration that it took a while for me to get into and to un understand myself more around and how it's not just a switch needed to be flipped and then you were yourself and you were cool or something. It's like a much deeper exploration of fundamentally who you are and how you want to show up in the world. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think that it's a, a feeling that we can all have regardless, of, like it doesn't have to be about your gender. I, like I sometimes have felt in the past, like I'm not playing to my strengths. I'm not giving the world the things that I have the most to offer. I'm not, you know, there there are other ways that we can feel like we're not, being our full selves to the best of our capacity. And that's a really awful feeling. That's a kind of a form of death. And so to move towards these things that make you feel like your full self is a very like moving towards your own life. It's a wonderful thing. And it, yeah, it's definitely not restricted to just figuring out that you're a transgender. That's, that's not just for us. Yeah. What I want to highlight is that I think any person, regardless of their gender orientation, can have a deeper relationship with their gender orientation or with their 
decision that maybe the language I'm using doesn't feel good to me or yeah the way that I've been treated doesn't feel good to me or the ways that I'm behaving don't feel good to me or I just want to explore this right I just want to explore something more so I, I think that that's a beautiful lesson that the trans people in our lives do bring in such a beautiful way and I think that we can all learn and be inspired by that even if we ourselves are not trans I'm curious now if you could take us into when you actually started to transition. Just give us a summary of how did that feel? How did it occur to you as it was happening? What were some of the changes you noticed? What were some of the things that came up for you around whether it was your gender or interacting with other people in society? Take us through how that was. Sure. Well, I didn't know at the time that I was following a pretty well-worn path where first I had my last hurrah where before I figured this out for the year leading up to my figuring out that I was trans, I was like hyper feminine. I was in a really feminine mode and I feel like it was me trying to make it work. Is there a place here for me? Subconsciously, this was not conscious, but it turns out that that's totally a thing that a lot of trans people I've talked to have said, oh yeah, I did that too. And then um, when I started transitioning, I kind of went the opposite. I kind of leaned into really being aware of my body language, trying to communicate masculinity as much as I could because I wasn't passing it. So you kind of are seeking out these sort of external, kind of superficial versions of, of gender. It's sort of childlike. I mean, you are literally going through puberty if you choose to take hormone therapy, which I did eventually. Um, I waited a year for lots of reasons. So for a year, I was wearing clothes that were, didn't fit right and walking all weird and just kind of trying to figure it out and it, it's it's very much like being 12 again and and not knowing how to move in your body and having different roles to play are you saying that you are relearning to walk because your physiological body changes were pushing you in that direction or was it a role or like a behavioral change that you were wanting to make Oh, that's a great question. No, it was totally social. Like, mm. I'm trying to change my body language to emulate more masculine-seeming body language. What is gender? Ultimately, when you when you start to grasp it, how do I make myself appear more like a man to random people? It's a thousand tiny things that kind of cluster together until we say, yeah, that's man, I guess. There is no one thing. So to reach for these little things that feel achievable in the moment is your best start. And it's and it takes practice. And, and it made me think a lot about boys going through puberty and where they kind of play at manness. What, what does that mean? How do they try it on? They, they try being mean. They try being tough. They try being the guy who stands up for what he believes. All these, you know, it's sort of like you're going through these archetypes almost in a way. But on a smaller level, on a less literarily beautiful level, you're also just trying to figure out how deep into my voice should I talk? And is this too much swagger or do I look confident? You know, it's it's these kinds of silly childish things that you go through and it's awkward. Not to mention then you do start hormone therapy and you, you get pimples and, and you have a weird oily face and your voice cracks and <laughs> you smell bad. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's not fun to be 25 and suddenly to smell like a 12-year-old boy. That's gross. 
you know, and suddenly you're you're like really sexually aroused for no reason because you're going through puberty and you're on testosterone. So all kinds of awkward things that aren't sexy or fun or um, they're some of the worst physical experiences that humans go through, really. I'm so curious about both aspects of this, right? Because one of the things you're talking about is physiological changes. And then the other thing you're talking about is psychosocial change, right? No, no. I mean, I want to dive deep on both of these, right? So maybe we can let's start with the behavioral stuff. So you're starting to transition and you're thinking, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm what I'm hearing is that you're starting to transition and you're thinking, I want to become a man. Is that roughly? Okay, that's roughly. Yeah. I guess that's even the wrong way to say it. it's more like I am a man and I'm making the transition into into being a man, right? Is that a more accurate way to sure. say it? I mean, I think that's the more like correct way to say it, but I don't think that that's where I where I was in the moment. In the moment, I wasn't even sure if that was my final destination. I I felt like this is the direction I'm going to head in. And I remember, I think I even said to some people close to me, I will probably end up at man. I will probably end up swinging all the way over there. And I feel fine with that. But what I know right now is that I need to move in this direction. So it was very much looser than that. But with that still came this departure from conditioned femininity and trying to figure out what does it mean to move in that direction, which is largely the same question. But when you talk about your specific wording, it does pull apart the the difference there. Yeah, I wasn't really entirely sure where exactly it was going to end up, just as when you're 10, 11, 12, you don't really know what your adult version of yourself is going to look like. It's the same thing in a a lot of ways, and in a weirdly high number of ways. It's very similar. I even remember saying, like, I didn't... I didn't want a beard. That was a big one. I forgot about that. I didn't want a beard. I really wanted testosterone, but I didn't want facial hair. And I and I remember thinking about it, thinking like, it's a boyness. I want to have like a, a boyness. I'm not ready to grow up. I needed to like go through this process of maturing into manness in a way that I didn't want to just grow up as a woman and then move laterally to man. I felt like I had to go through this process because it is a process. It's a it's a maturation. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I love how it's kind of like we we don't get to skip that process, right? Yeah. Yeah, if we're growing into some other aspects of ourselves, we all have a maturation, no matter how physical or behavioral or emotional or mental that might be. So what was going through your mind as far as what was your source material for envisioning yourself as a more masculine behaving and presenting person? What were some of those images or what, what were some of the things that you tried, whether it was walking or dressing or whatever? What was informing your notion of being a man? I remember not feeling like I had models to look up to. It's not like I was flipping through a magazine and was like that. It's not like picking out a haircut where I'm like, oh, that looks good. Like, I really didn't have much. I mean, I certainly met people who had the kind of energy I was sort of feeling or vibing with that was gender bendy. I started to realize pretty early in this process of exploring that I was definitely attracted to the idea of being a feminine man. Like, I'm pretty early on thinking, like, I almost want to be read as, like, a trans woman, almost. Which is sounds absurd, and and it is, but, like, just almost that far where I want it to be, like, 
I want to be so in manness that my femininity is read as like almost cross gender where the femininity is the cross gender. And the more I thought about that, the more I felt like, yeah. And I remember explaining to my parents because they said, you know, we didn't really see you as a boy growing up. You didn't feel like you had super boy energy. And I said, you're right. I, I'm not super masculine. And that's, I think that was also part of what took me so long to figure it out. I'm not a super, whatever that means, the word masculine. I, I you know I wasn't a violent child. I wasn't loud. I wasn't these things that we associate with boys. I wasn't. I was very gentle and artsy and and sensitive. And I'm a lot of those same things today. And it, so it took more pulling apart to see like, but I started to construct this idea of what I wanted, which was femininity in a man. And that's when I started to realize gender is kind of just like a social context for everything else. At least that's one way to look at it. You know, if you're a woman, you're bossy. If you're a man, you have leadership skills. That's a, like kind of a trope. But it's all these things where it's it contextualizes all the traits a person can have. And so I wanted my femininity to be rooted in the context of manness. And that felt right. And that felt really good. And I could and I started to picture that the more I moved towards it, this idea that and, and the closer I felt to it, every milestone, you know, I'm taking testosterone, I'm starting to pass as a man, I got top surgery, I got this really short haircut, all these milestones ultimately let me feel closer to my own femininity, because now that femininity made sense to me. And it didn't feel like it was drowning me. I love that. And I and one of the things I love about it is how at choice you were and are around it. And again, I mean, like, I feel like I keep bringing this back, but I do feel like we are all at choice around how we want to show up and manifest who we are. People can get so binary in, in how they think about this stuff. Foster transitioned and now he's a man. And because he's a man, all of these things that we assume about men now apply to Foster. Why do we do that? Why would we make those assumptions? And even someone who, who is cisgendered, why would we make all of those assumptions about? about who they are. Why would we make assumptions about their hormones? Not everyone's hormones show up in the same quantities. And right, as we're seeing from all of these scary and controversial rulings in sports, right, where like cisgendered women are getting disqualified for their testosterone and stuff. For their natural testosterone levels. That's like a crucial... For, for their natural testosterone, right? Exactly. Yes. And so I think that's just another example of how how kind of extreme... And, and really binary, the mindset that people can get into. Okay, so I'm curious, as you are moving away from presenting female, what were some of the things that you were maybe losing or just people weren't seeing in you anymore, expecting of you anymore, that actually felt like, oh, I'm kind of sad to lose that? Did you have any experience of that? Or was it mostly just joyfully moving towards something? You know, I, I found that moving from female to male, you don't lose much. Okay. <laughs> Especially, <laughs> you, you gain a lot. You don't lose much. And the things that I could have lost would have been me, like, adopting toxic masculinity things, which I had no interest in doing. Why would I do that? <laughs> if it's not already all given to me, then the least benefit I could get from this is to cherry pick the parts of manness that I want. Why would I pick up burdens? I, so I didn't. And that's been great. I think it would have been harder if, if my identity were more masculine. If I were a straight man, I think that those things would have made it more difficult to assimilate into that kind of identity without picking up more restrictive aspects of the male identity, like not being allowed to be emotional or expressive, um, not 
being allowed to be tender or just to have like softness in you. I, I don't feel any of those restrictions because I don't feel that that's expected of me as a pretty apparently gay man. That all works for me. So I feel very lucky. I, I feel like I got to gain a lot and lose very little. I think the only thing I ever remember was suddenly realizing like, maybe I need to be slightly more on guard with the way I interact with random children. Like at the time, when I very first started taking testosterone, I was a cashier at Whole Foods, at one of the largest Whole Foods in the world. And like, so I interacted with hundreds of people every day and suddenly I'm noticing, I think I need to maybe just be a little less friendly with little kids maybe like there's a there's a breed there where you know that men are predators and and women are caretakers so i maybe being like really excited to see little kids needs to be tempered and i'm not even sure if that's true because guys who are great with kids everybody loves it's nice it's not weird i don't know i think it was the only thing i was like maybe this is something i need to watch out for and i think in retrospect it probably wasn't but it was just an unknown at the time so i was like maybe this but that hasn't really been an issue since that that in and of itself fascinates me that realization of along with passing as man i'm at least stepping into the possibility of having to deal with some of the male legacy Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah and I, i guess yeah i'm curious if there are any other male legacy topics that either came on then or have since come up to you Yes, but only things that I'm so happy to get to participate in now. The the main other one. So for my job now, I work downtown in a big city in a big office building. And we have two different sets of elevators, one to get from the parking garage down to the main floor. And then you go into the main office building elevators and you can get up to your floor from there. And especially in the parking garage elevators, it can feel, you feel isolated. It feels creepy. It doesn't feel that safe. So like the other day, there was a woman walking up ahead of me to the elevator. So I just kind of slowed down and I pretended to look at something in my bag so she could get in the elevator by herself because I know what it feels like to feel like I don't want to be rude. I don't want to let this door close on this stranger, but I'm about to get in a soundproof metal box with a strange man alone. Things like that, just being aware of the fear of being a woman and being so happy to get to be a man who can accommodate that. So that's that's one that happens all the time. If I'm following behind a woman on the street or something, I might hang back or cross the street or something. And I'm thrilled to get to do that. Every time I, I love that I get to do that. I hate that that's a thing that needs to be done, but I'm happy to get to be that person. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking about that more in the last number of years too, just doing simple things like crossing the street if I'm following a woman or even stepping out into the street to make room for the woman on the sidewalk just as like a kind of a, hey, I'm, I want you to know that I'm aware of my maleness in this moment and giving you some extra space. I love that you brought that up, and I do think that there are a lot of small ways like that that men can show that they're paying attention and that men can acknowledge. It's not even like saying, I am a violent man who needs to be controlled, but more just acknowledging this is a history. There's a history here. And I want to make sure that you know that I'm aware of that history and that I'm not going to be repeating that violent history. Yeah, it's not It's not even about the actual violence. It could be. It, in her mind, it always is hypothetically. But, um, but it's about like ending this cycle of terror because it's not about me. It's not about what I might do. 
I think that needs to be like really clear. It's not a judgment on that individual man. It's that she doesn't know which man is going to be the crazy one who's going to kill her. It, she doesn't know. So to just be like, it's not this one, to be able to communicate, it's not this man, is all I can do. And it, every time that that can happen, for her, it matters. So... Yeah, that's like a it's a big one. I just wanted to like kind of underline that it, that it has nothing to do with a judgment on the man in question <laughs> ever. It's not about right. That. No, that's such a great perspective. Men need to hear that and think about that and consider that. stepped from being in a class with one level of privilege to a whole different level of privilege. How was that? What were some of the things you noticed? What started to happen for you or what doors started to open for you or what things that you used to be worried about did you no longer have to be worried about stepping into maleness? Everything, literally everything. Like I don't even know where to start. Everything changed. Uh, Everything became more open and more possible. One of the first things I noticed was that I felt safe, just kind of going hand in hand with what we were just talking about. I didn't grow. I didn't get taller. I'm still a hair under 5'7". I still weigh about 150 pounds. I didn't go to the gym. I didn't get ripped. I'm a little stronger thanks to hormones, but I am not muscly. I'm not any more of a physical threat than I was prior to transitioning, but there's no target on my back anymore. Just that feeling of I can walk outside alone at night or I can see how far away I can unlock my car with my remote because that's a thing you're not allowed to do as a woman. You know, just little things. I Like my guard had got to drop and that feeling is incredible. Sometimes, very rarely do I feel situations where I feel actively, acutely unsafe for my trans status, but I pass most of the time, so it's normally not an issue. So mostly it's just I feel incredibly safe. I was already what I considered to be a radical feminist before I transitioned. I had no idea. I had these ideas about what maybe was different about being a man, and then I experienced it. It wasn't even, I wasn't even close. Things I had no idea were to do with my gender changed. And it was like, huh, nothing else changed. But all of a sudden, you know, I'm having a conversation with some people at work and I throw out like, well, maybe it's something like this. Expecting no one to really react or do anything with that. And all of a sudden everyone stops and is like, yeah, yeah, that's that's how we're gonna do it. And I'm like, why is what I have to say suddenly so important and suddenly taken seriously? And you know, no one ever stops and says like, well, where'd you hear that? Why do you, why do you think that that is? You know, like what's your source? I don't get questioned anymore. What I say is taken as true for sure. Women do smile a lot more. I know there's that whole thing with men telling women to smile, but when I transitioned, all of a sudden I got told all the time, like, oh, you're so, I love your smile. You smile so much. Or what, like so many comments about smiling. <laughs> because I'm used to smiling as a woman, you know? So things like that that you notice, but just, um, and then small things like, um, I remember my first few weeks of college, I, you know, I transferred to a four year, it was in my late twenties, I was far older than everyone else in my class. But this girl was showing me around and showing me this new, um, well, new to me, cafeteria place. And we were trying to find a table 
and someone, these two guys walked up to ask us a question about this table we were hovering around. Some, I can't remember the details, but they, they both came up and talked to me. And I just immediately was like, wow, it is so clear to me that they came and talked to me and not my friend because I look like a guy and she looks like a girl. When actually she was showing me around and I felt like everything about my body language was saying, I'm not sure, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know where I am or my way around or how this works or anything. And she was very much in this, I'm showing you around. I know what I'm doing. I'm familiar and comfortable here. But none of that was read. What was read was woman and man. So the man must be the person who with the answers. And I know that that was all totally subconscious. But things like that all the time, I'm like assumed to be the person with the answers if everyone else I'm with is a woman. And that's fascinating to me because I don't know anything about anything. <laughs> wow. It's so important because of what you said, because when feminists talk about it, men, especially men who don't want to hear it, will just be like, well, whatever. They have an anti-male agenda, so I'm not going to listen to them, right? But, when, but what you're talking about is actively moving into that space and being like, this is exactly what the difference was. I could compare it from one day yeah. to the next. Exactly. And it was so much more than I thought it was. Yeah. You know, it wasn't less. I wasn't exaggerating in my head, and I was way under what it was. Oh, another thing was, for speaking of school, it was, for years I was interested in studying economics, and all the time, I don't know why people think it's okay to say this, but all the time people would say things like, are you sure? Why don't you go to something more creative? Like, what about English? What about literature? Just studying another language or something with music? And I, that always baffled me. Like, why would they say that? I'm really interested in economics. And when I transitioned, never, not a single time ever since. Never. People would be like, wow, good for you. Good for you. Economics. Wow. What's, yeah, that's good. Good for you. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. Why wasn't it good for me before? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it, those are, but those are the kinds of tiny things. You know, if you hear that your whole life, you might be less likely to go out for economics. And then you wonder why you don't have any women in, in your economics program. Totally. Hello? We're telling them their whole life. Are you sure? <laughs> and then even, you know, I can imagine the experience of being like the only woman who walks into the economics classroom on the first day, right? And having all of these men turn around in their chair. What a tone to set that woman's going to spend her yeah. entire career having to deal with that. So gosh, yeah. And all of that stuff, like it runs so deep and it's connected. These parts of our self-esteem and our self-image are connected to the whole of us. And so I feel like something that might be as small, right, as or seemingly small as just someone questioning your choice of what you want to study, that might go all the way back to you being like, wait, do I even know who I am? Am I even, yeah. maybe start questioning things that you just don't need to question about yourself. Yep, totally. And then, and then, yeah, maybe I don't even know, like, am I right to, to that I'm, should I transition? Maybe that's not the right thing. Maybe I'm wrong because I've been taught my whole life to question everything that I think I know, that I'm never sure that I'm right until a man tells me so, you know? And then you transition, you're like, oh, no, I'm, I'm allowed to decide things and I'm allowed to know things and it's okay. That's a mental habit that is taught to you from the moment you're born. And it, so I've transitioned. It's been, I don't know exactly, but we've got to be coming up on a decade since I've transitioned. And I don't feel that much closer to fixing that particular mental habit. Like, I don't have a lot of trust in myself still. And it, in some ways, it's gotten better. And, and in some ways, I've tried to lean into my experience now as a man where people take me more seriously 
But mostly I just have a massive amount of imposter syndrome all the time because because it's always like it's such a deeply ingrained thing that that I, I probably I'm probably wrong. I don't know. I'm just taking a guess. It's, it's just a thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was reading an article the other day and it was basically it was written by a woman instructing other women to pay attention to simple things like how they're phrasing questions or being like, hey, notice if you're asking people, does that make sense? Or is this all right? All that kind of stuff. She was gently but firmly encouraging other women to be like, don't second guess yourself as much and pay attention to how you've been socialized to think that points that you make aren't as important. They run so deep. Yeah, it does. And it's something I will often do with close women friends of mine is if they say something that's really glaringly like, oh, girl, girl, you got this, you know, or I'll kind of say like, hey, imagine a guy saying what you just said. What would that sound like? (laughs) It's kind of like, let's, let's run a little mental exercise here and hear how ridiculously like self-questioning you're being for no reason. You know what you're talking about and you're allowed to be sure about this. Yeah. Am I making sense? I don't know if that makes sense. That's such a thing. Totally. Yeah. I do that constantly. If it's okay. I'm like, why am I asking? I mean, even just yesterday I asked my partner like, Hey, when you're on your way home, I think it's something really stupid. Like what are the odds that you would stop at HEB and pick up some milk? He's like, okay, I've, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. Are you asking me to pick up milk? Are you asking me if I'm going to H-E-B and if so, would I pick up milk? And I was like, you know, actually the former. And he's like, okay, so just ask me if I could pick up milk. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, I'm just like not even confident enough to just say, hey, is that a thing you could do? Instead, I'm couching it in this, if it wouldn't be too inconvenient, if you happen to already do this thing, I hope that I'm planting a seed that maybe catches you so that if you happen to be here, you remember to do this thing. And it's like, no, it's, I know you're going to pass by the grocery store on the way home. I know you'll have time. Would you pick up some milk? And it was such a great moment of him recognizing this tendency in me and saying, please just ask me for what you want so I can give it to you. Mm. Mm. It takes work. I think it takes a lifetime of work as all thoughtful communication does, but we have a lot of unlearning to do, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Totally. One of the things that I love about your description of this process for you is that I feel like you've had this moment in your life where the question is very concretely put in front of you. What kind of man do I want to be? And having a real opening in every sense of the word for you to live into that and experience into that. And I would love it if every man had that. Whatever developmental stage, it makes most sense. When people talk about initiation rites and stuff, which is a whole conversation, but anyway... Part of what happens in that moment, I think, in a lot of cultures is that people are presented with this question of what kind of man are you going to be? I love that you have been able to take that on in a very conscious way where, you know, a lot of men are very unconscious around it. And they're just kind of whatever idea floats closest or that they see in their older brother or whatever they're kind of wanting to angle towards, they'll they'll go in that direction. But I think a lot of men don't ever stop to consider what kind of man do I want to be. Yeah, and I think that that's so true. And that feeling that you don't have a choice, first of all, is so restricting to the person experiencing it. It strips them of of so much autonomy and freedom. It's 
deeply repressive to not even feel like you have a choice there when you do. But the other thing is that I think it helps to feel like you don't have a choice when you do also helps perpetuate this idea that none of us has a choice and that gender is some kind of absolute biologically determined thing, which is a really obvious lead into to really problematic views about gender in general. Not just like, okay, so you're probably transphobic. Sure. But um, if you believe that, then on some level, you also believe other lies we have taught ourselves about gender, like women are naturally more nurturing, for instance. Or anger doesn't really count as an emotion when we talk about people being emotional, because when we say emotional, we mean women. There's so many deeply problematic things, things that I think most people can point a finger to and say, that's wrong, that's sexist. But it's all stemming from the same belief that we don't really have a choice. You have a choice. We all have a choice. Every second you get to decide in every moment what kind of person you want to be. And that includes how you want to express your gender and what that gender means to you. That's a great natural transition into the next question that I had, the second part of that equation we were talking about, which is the hormones. Because, you know, one of the things I'm super curious about is what are some of the things that happened as a result of hormones and how did that change your behaviors or even like your propensity? Like you're still at choice about your behavior, but how did that modify, put an extra wind behind some behaviors or or take the wind out of your sails with other behaviors? I'm really curious to hear about that. Yeah, it's interesting. And that is a ride I have ridden full circle and then some. Um, I have now gone through, hold on, I believe four puberties. (laughs) Two estrogen ones and two testosterone ones because of pregnancy, because I got off tea to get pregnant, which was another, so that was my second female puberty. And then getting back on tea afterwards was my second male puberty. And we want to have another kid, so that'll be another two puberties. But um, (laughs) so I have done the hormone circuit, I'm very familiar, and um, and it's a wild ride. But it's funny because on both ends of the extremes, because I've had times where I was too high on tea, and I would imagine, I would hazard a guess that your average man who may or may not be listening to this podcast doesn't know what their testosterone level actually is. Why would you know that? I never knew what my estrogen level was before I transitioned. But as a trans person, you're acutely aware of what your <laughs> hormone levels are because they have to get tested all the time, and you can adjust your dose and you can play with it a little bit. And, and I have done all that. I've had it be too high, and I've had it be this anger problem. And I've also been wildly, angrily pregnant and also, you know, violently angry. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it, th- those things exist on both sides. Some, some of it, thank God, some of it kind of subsided after a while. When I first started testosterone, I felt for a, for a while, for at least a year, maybe maybe two, like, I don't know if I'm going to cry ever again, which is a terrible feeling. Crying is so satisfying, and, and, and it's such an important process for facilitating emotion and expressing it and and i just couldn't it was this huge wall and it wasn't a mental wall i don't as far as i can tell as far as i believe i don't believe there was like a a mental block there i think it was like truly it was physically far from me from where i was with my hormones and i did turn out to be a, a little more sensitive than normal so when i first started off on the original dose then found out it was too high and had to pull back so there's some of that but it lasted much longer than that that adjustment was pretty quick you know under six months and, and the not crying thing lasted for a while. But that faded. Now I cry all the time. <laughs> so, but yeah, some things... I, I think the biggest thing, and I don't know how else to explain it except this one way I've always explained it, is when emotions feel really overwhelming, it can often feel much easier on testosterone to kind of say, okay, 
here's all my feelings. I'm gonna put them over here and I'm gonna think my thoughts about this. Like I can choose to separate it a little more easily. It used to be, I had to think through it, but all these pieces were still tangled with emotion. And that's okay too. It's not that one's really better. I think it's more that it makes the process of thinking through those things less fraught to be able to pull the emotion out of it while you're thinking through it. But emotion always matters. So it's not like, I don't think it's necessarily a clearer thought process to be able to pull emotion out of your process. You don't want to lose perspective of your, like emotion matters immensely. So taking it away isn't necessarily strength. But it just makes it a little easier for me to go through it if I can set my emotions aside for a minute. It's like more peaceful. But that's probably the biggest thing. And that's been pretty constant regardless of how much tea I'm on or where, where I'm at in the phase or whether I'm in puberty or not. And that one's pretty steady as a, as a thing that I get on, on testosterone, which is cool. It's fascinating to me to think about this conversation around which parts of me are me or like which parts of me are how I really feel. Is there anything about me that's really me? Or is it all just this stew of hormones and the way I was raised and trauma? And that's one of the things that's coming to me out of hearing you talk about this. How much of who we are and what we react to the world with is based on this like really complex mix of different influences. That's really interesting to hear about feeling like more, I could hazard the word logical, maybe like having a more logical approach to your emotions or a more removed experience of them. I'm curious to hear you talk about anger, because that's something that people will often blame on testosterone, specifically aggression. So yeah. that is really interesting to me to hear you talk about pregnancy, hormone, anger, and then testosterone, hormone, anger. What, what was the difference in your experience of those two kinds of angry? I mean, one is more fun. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, I feel like. <laughs> that sounds so awful. But like, the testosterone one can feel very finite, like a thirst that can be quenched. It can feel like, I am so angry, and I slammed this wine glass into the sink and broke it and now I feel better okay like and I'm still angry I guess but it's not like oh okay guys I'm good now but it's more of a like a moment a release and it's like ah okay cool that's scratching itch whereas pregnant angry is like that is true hormonal anger because there's there's not necessarily anything anyone could ever do to fix it it's not about a thing it's just it's like this volatile hormonal volcano inside of you and sometimes it's just going on rage and sometimes it's not and it can switch very quickly and there's lots of hollywood jokes about you know a woman crying and sobbing and then being super happy and then being super horny and that's like you know it's such a joke and it's so played out but it's kind of true you know it's um but it's yeah so it's just very different where that feels like i could break something and the volcano is still going so it kind of doesn't matter just cool now i broke a glass so I've been thinking about the anger thing a lot recently because I just got off tea for a few months with the plan that we were going to start laying the way to get pregnant again. And then we decided to delay it. So I got back on tea. It's going to be a few more months for lots of reasons. But I noticed when I got off tea that I wasn't having the same kind of anger anymore. 
And so now that I'm back on it, I've been more tentative with it because I've been more patient. I've been a better partner and a better parent. I've been just, it's, I've had an easier time adapting when things didn't go the way I expected them to go. Not even wanted them to go, but like expect, like, but I expected this and it went differently. And now I'm feeling so inflexible and angry about it for some reason. And I've just been taking this opportunity to lean back and remind myself that it's okay, dude. Every hormone body is different and, and, and they all change over time. No one has the same hormonal experience through their entire life, no matter what. And no two people are the same with it. So we're all working with slightly different biological building blocks anyway, whether or not you choose to move them around as much as I have. But it is still all choice. It's still all, what do you do with what you have? But yeah, it can, it definitely, the anger thing, I think it does, it does play up the anger for sure. It, it makes it easier. But I do think we have also like a society that then encourages us to lean into that. Social things exaggerate biological things. And then we think the social thing was the truth when it wasn't. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is, it's coming from a very different place. These deeply antisocial, aggressive behaviors are being encouraged, or they're being reinforced, or they're being traumatized into people. Men, predominantly men, are like not they're not getting their needs met in a number of ways, which is resulting in these aggressive behaviors. And then they're getting a lot of really negative reinforcement, which is also pushing them into these aggressive behaviors. So so yeah, anyway, I, I really appreciate your concrete perspective on that based on your hormonal experience. I can't imagine how much harder it would be to not be an angry, violent person if I had that hormonal concoction and felt like I wasn't allowed to cry or ever say that I felt scared or that I needed a hug. You know, like, that's an awful combo. That seems like a really toxic combo to, for someone to find themselves in that must be very restrictive. To That must feel really oppressive. So again, you're bringing us to a good transition here because I did want to talk more about your pregnancy. And especially, I think the concept of men getting pregnant and bringing a child to term is like very head explodey, I think, still for a number of people in the culture. So I wanted to talk more with you about your experiences around that. One of the things I'm curious about is how have those conversations been going for you? And what has surprised you in terms of things that ended up being more positive than you thought they were or things that were like unexpectedly challenging that you didn't think would be? I had no idea that I would feel invisible, but I did. That wasn't a thought that had occurred to me. And I still do when I, in anything that has to do with if pregnancy comes up, it's, it's erased because pregnancy is such an extreme physical experience. It's like running a marathon for a year. Like you, you have a different body than the one you're used to. You get like something disgusting, like 50% more blood in your body. It's gross. I don't know why that grossed me out in particular. I'm not even a 
weird about blood, but that grossed me out. And just everything about what you know about your body is suddenly not true. It's someone else's body. It's It functions differently. It, the rules have changed. You don't know anymore. And uh, it's so extreme. And, and then childbirth is so extreme. And I gave birth without... I wish I just... I could have just taken some Tylenol at the very least, but I didn't. I didn't even think about it. But I just had a brutally unmedicated pregnancy in my mother-in-law's kitchen two weeks after the world shut down for COVID. It was April of 2020. So it was just like this very intense experience. I mean, all of it, no matter what your pregnancy experience is, it's all intense. And either I don't talk about it to not out myself or I have to out myself to talk about it, which is just unfortunate. But the entire time I was pregnant, I was in a public-facing job and I was not about to like explain to every person hey, I'm actually a man. I didn't pass. I've seen photos of men who totally, like they have a beard and they look like a dude the entire time they're pregnant. They look like they have a beer gut. I'm so jealous of those people because the second I get off testosterone, my hips come back. Even though I've had top surgery, a lot of breast tissue came back. Like it was just, there was no passing for me. So I think everyone just assumed I was a lesbian which is fine. But I just felt really erased. I felt invisible. I felt like I literally did not exist anymore. And that feeling took a long time to go away. So that was really challenging. I don't think I know a single trans man in person, like in real life, like anyone I have an actual connection with that that, um, has ever wanted to be pregnant or like thinks that that's something they might do. It's very rare. Trans people are rare. And then trans people who want to have babies are rarer. (laughs) So... So, so it is very uncommon just to give any validation to anyone who's like, what? It, yeah, it's, it's very rare. I always wanted to be pregnant and that didn't go away when I transitioned. I wasn't sure if I could or if I should. I, wasn't, I didn't have all the information. So I was open to not having a kid if that's what transition meant for me. That was a consequence I was willing to accept. But I found out that I could and I was really lucky to be able to get a bunch of tests done to make sure everything was good and it was, everything was great. In fact, the OB said, because I had to run all these tests, they had ultrasounds and blood tests and they checked my hormones and stuff. And the OB who was doing all this said, if you're not pregnant after six months of trying, you need to get your partner tested because this is good to go. <laughs> so it felt good. I, I felt happy with the, my ability to get pregnant. I f- and I also have s- said to people before who are confused about what it means to be transgender, I've s- because they, they believe that maybe... We're we're delusional. That's like a common one. You're delusional. You don't. You think you have a penis. You think that like you're. You don't understand. And and I think being pregnant is a great way for me to point to this and say, I know exactly what my body is. I know exactly what I what my body can do. And that's why I got pregnant. Like it wasn't an accident. It was very much on purpose. We got pregnant because we wanted to have a baby. Because I wanted to carry a child. I know exactly what my body is. And it's really friggin' cool that I can carry a baby. It's amazing. I think it's rad. And I'm really happy I got to do it. I'm happy when I do it again. For me, what it reminds me is the, the subtlety and the layers of things and the spaces between things are the assumptions that are so easy to make. And you're walking in this territory between these assumptions. I'm curious, how has it been talking with mothers and other pregnant women like how how has that experience been for you oh it's it's it depends so if it's someone that i'm at all at all close to it doesn't have to be like a best friend but just someone that i like have an ongoing relationship with then it's wonderful and great but everything else i hate i hate it because i'm not going to explain it i'm not going to out myself just so i can have this conversation 
And I also don't want to always burden people with having to like deal with it, decide what they, how they want to react, decide how they want to process that just so we can have a conversation about something that is while extreme, also very mundane. It happens all the time. So yeah, I just kind of, <laughs> I kind of hate it. And if it's any, in any kind of aggregate form, for instance, like a support group or that, or just not even as formless support group, but like I had a, a friend who had a kid right before I did, who started a like first time mom's Facebook group. And I'm already feeling like, okay, well, I'm not a mom. And it's easy from any other position to say, yeah, but you know what they mean? But I'm sure you could go like you. Yeah. But you know what they mean? And it's like, I do. And I don't want to go to a fucking mom's group. You know, <laughs> like, I, sorry. I, um, so yeah, if anything less than like someone who's in my life, I love talking about pregnancy. It was a profound experience. And I, I love talking about it with my friends. My boss just told me that she's pregnant and I'm really excited to talk about it with her. We have been talking about it and it's really fun. And like, I'm excited for the, everything she's going through and that and she's excited that she has someone she gets to talk to about it that she didn't think she had anyone at work that she could talk to. So now she does. I'm like, surprise, me too. But yeah, I, I hate, I, I hate it otherwise because <laughs> I just feel erased. Mm, yeah. So what's your easy go-to? Do people assume that you and Andrew had a surrogate, or what's what's the kind of code way that you approach that? Yeah, that's a really good question because we're still figuring it out too. Um, okay. I mean, people generally, I think the default assumption is adoption. That's probably the most common thing that people do. Although both surrogacy and adoption are really expensive. Like, honestly, if we couldn't have our own kids biologically, I don't think we would have a kid right now because we're not rich. But um, <laughs> I mean, there's like the foster path, which is tricky. Anyway, that's a whole conversation. So... Sometimes people ask, people feel like they're allowed to ask a, a gay couple when they wouldn't have asked a straight couple, like, well, where'd you get your kid? You know? And I, mm. I completely understand. I don't think it takes such a leap to understand why someone would ask that question. Being that person receiving that question, I'm like, wow, why do you think you get to ask that question? But I do, I do get it. I do get why people ask that question. I think I probably would be the same way if the roles were switched. So we still, a lot of the time, have this awkward thing where someone will ask Andrew because he's just like more of a people person than I am. I think I'm a people person, but he's more so. And so people tend to engage with him first. So if it's sort of a first conversation thing, which is usually when this would happen, people usually will ask him, did you guys adopt? Did you have a surrogate? What's up? How'd you get her? And we've tried things like, oh, we kidnapped her. (laughs) (laughs) You know, see if we like, can we shit? Yeah. Can I shake it off? You know, usually not. Usually people are like, oh, it's not seriously. (laughs) So that doesn't work. So far, I either have told people the truth or have said something like, actually, our situation happens to involve kind of private information about someone else. So we don't really have a, I'm sorry, I don't really have a good answer for you, which I think people probably hear and think like, oh, someone's brother is in jail and this is his kid or something like that, (laughs) which is fine. I'm okay with that. It's just tricky. I feel like we still haven't fully ironed that one out, how to say it. That's that's the best answer I have when I don't want to give everything. An answer I've been told many times to, to say is, she's ours and that's all that matters. And I think that that's a great response. I'm just not sassy enough to say that to someone. I'm too f- female conditioned to make someone that uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> there so, you go. So I don't. 
Instead, I make it something that's sort of couched in apology where I'm like, I'm sorry I can't fully answer your question for reasons that are outside of my control is kind of how I generally answer it. But yeah. Sure. Well, and that's right. That's a decision you get to make as well. You know, maybe yeah. that's how you that's maybe how you want to be right. Maybe you do want to be apologetic about it. I think sometimes there's like there's assumptions that that's the wrong way to be or something. Or again, there's like some misogyny that comes in where it's like because women do that, it's weak. That is such a good point. Right? Maybe not. Maybe not. Exactly. That's such a good point. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. So yeah, what a what a deep topic. I would love to go so much more into that and we're coming towards the end of the of our time here so i really appreciate you you sharing about that so yeah my my final question is a pretty broad one so just feel free to come at it from whatever angle you want i would just love it if you could speak to men in a way of what would you love for men to remember whether it's about their experience or about their relationship with with other people what are just some things that you think men could use a reminder on i have like one beautiful thing that i think we've sort of come at together through this whole conversation that i'd love to finish on but before that a small finite thing that I've never heard anybody say that I don't know who else would have the perspective to say. It's just this one kind of funny thing. Some men, right? We talked about it's not you that's being that is necessarily violent to step away from the elevator or whatever. But some men are terrifying and they're not terrifying usually to other men. And I didn't know this until I'd gone through this whole process. And I had a, a friend of mine tell a story about our coworker that something that had happened to her where she was pretty sure he had roofied her. And I remember thinking, that guy wouldn't do that. He seems so normal. And then realizing, you idiot, of course he wouldn't show any of that to you. You're a dude too. And it just was a huge aha moment for me where I realized this is why it is so hard for men to appreciate the horror that women go through is because they see those same men in a completely different light because of course they do of course you do of course those dudes seem normal to you they're not creeping on you you're not a victim to them like of course a dog is friendly to other dogs and not so friendly to the squirrel it's that kind of thing you know it's you're not their prey and i just didn't get that and i you know i watched the whole me too movement and some men starting to understand and grasp the horror like the terror that women live with all the time the fear of violent assault <laughs> at the hands of some random man. And, and I just didn't realize that that was a crucial, tiny crux of, of the process that was missing for most men, I think, was not being able to see that you don't see it. You wouldn't see it. So you don't know that you might actually have, you might have friends who are monsters to women and you wouldn't know. You couldn't know. And that's not your fault. It's just a huge reminder for like how to believe women. And I just hadn't seen that tiny piece before i'm sorry this is kind of off topic a little bit but it's just a thing i've seen and been like that moment that's an important moment that i don't think anybody's really plucked out and identified yet and i think it's crucial to this entire conversation about men and women and assault and safety and me too and all of that it's like and i think it's part of men understanding their position in it because it's hard to talk about when you feel like you're being attacked all the time and so maybe to understand that like why you're not seeing the threat can help you pull yourself out of that and make it feel like you're not being attacked. <laughs> you're not being attacked. We're attacking this idea that is a problem for some men, you know, and I don't know. I'm, I'm not even saying it very well because I haven't vocalized that thought process very much, but 
But I think it's really important, and I think I should probably write about it and pull that idea out more. Yeah, I I really appreciate that. That's about as on topic as it gets. So I just oh really to, okay yeah yeah just the for the broader idea of what this podcast is right is really getting into that stuff. Why are things the way they are? Why do women? make such a big deal about men's behavior. It's stuff like that. Yeah. So exactly. It's like we need more of these concrete examples of here's what can happen so that even the men who aren't behaving that way or planning to do that can broaden their awareness. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm glad that that's helpful to the cause. Yeah, this guy seemed like harmless, nerdy, kind of shy dude. I just never felt anything weird or scary. And so it was I my first reaction was... I don't, are we talking about the same guy? I don't think so. And then I realized like, that's, that's it. That's the thing that's been missing from this entire conversation is that of course men can't see it. You can't. Why would you be able to see it? So yeah, that was just a thing for me. Yeah. The larger thing, and I think it's what we've kind of been building up to this, this, and I, I feel like we've created this really beautiful narrative here kind of by accident, or maybe not by accident for you, I don't know, but um, that you get to choose. I think that that's probably the, the biggest gift. If I could bring a gift from the experience of being trans to the cis community, is the cis people a community? I don't know. <laughs> but, um, kind of, it's a culture, questions. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah really digging into them. Um, but I think that, that gift <laughs> that gift would be that you get to decide. There's freedom here. That we have found a freedom that you are invited to. This is a party that everybody's invited to, and it doesn't mean that you have to change your gender. It means that you get to decide what that looks like and what the definition is, because there is no biology that is saying any of this these things that we tell ourselves about what what makes men and women different men are from mars and women are from venus insanity it's just the variation between any two people is so much greater than the variation between men and women if you were to run it statistically you would find like there's really not a lot of statistical basis for making these two separate groups on this criteria it doesn't really make sense so to embrace the individual difference and let yourself define what gender means to you. I think that there's so much freedom there. And I think it's such a shame that, and I know this has been like a direction of your podcast, that this messaging about feminism and the gender binary and all this stuff seems least received by cis men, cis hetero men. And it's so unfortunate because I think in, in, in some ways they're losing the worst. They're, they miss the most in some ways. I don't, I don't want to say the most in all ways because that's not true. But in some ways, there are things that men are missing that because of this, that it is robbing them of a full life. It's it's so restrictive and, and it's like a prison. And I and I just would want so badly to to gift the, the freedom from that. That's a choice. You may not get to exactly choose your gender, but you get to choose what it means to you and how you express it. And that gets to change over time. There's so much freedom here. And going back to a world where we are legally defining what it means to be a man or a woman, it's just about the worst kind of fascism I could possibly imagine. Like, go for yourself and have a good cry. (laughs) Or enjoy listening to whatever Madonna you want to listen to or whatever it is. Like, God, these awful, restrictive cliches are so harmful. And I just feel sad for people stuck in it. Like, you don't have to be. 
nailed it. <laughs> I, I can't improve upon what you said, but I'll just reiterate that that's exactly how I think about this podcast and, and how I think about what men have right now is I think it's a huge opportunity. I did an episode, it was called Is Manhood Shrinking? It was focused on how like a lot of people, especially men, think that because of Me Too or because of these kind of large seismic shifts in the direction of culture, that men are somehow losing or, or being more restricted. And I was trying to highlight in that episode how the opposite, I think, is true. I think men have such an incredible opportunity right now to move outside of the small cultural boxes that they've been put in. A simple example, I've been expanding my wardrobe lately, and that's been a part of my transitioning into being the kind of man that I want to be. And I've noticed how like the men's sections in a lot of these stores are so depressingly limited. And it's another concrete example of that prison that you're talking about. We get to wear yes. four different things. And sure, there's variations in color and style and all the stuff. But like, these are the only things that we get to wear. And then I look over at the women's section. And I mean, that has its own kind of limitations and, and whatever, right? The store's full of clothes. Why can't I just wear them all? Yeah. So that's one very easy to visualize example. But I think that the so-called male experience, if I can call it that, the socialized male experience is, I feel like in every area, it looks like that, where there's this kind of narrow bandwidth about the way that we're supposed to be. And then there's this beautiful multiplicity of the way that we could be. You're able to illuminate that path in a way that not many are, I think. And so I, I'm just really appreciating your perspective and the erudite way in which you share it. So thank you, Foster. <laughs> oh, I know we're wrapping up. If there's anything, if there's any way this gets edited in or something, cool. But I meant to touch on, because we talk about how hormones affect behavior, that's a thing, that, that it also goes the other way. There was a study done in Sweden after they passed, I think it's like two years of paid paternity leave. Maybe it's a year, a year or two, a long time, a lot longer than the U.S. has. They found that men who stayed home with their children had higher levels of estrogen afterwards. And not like those were the ones who were selected, like they, because they had higher estrogen, they chose to stay home with their children. It's like a nationwide thing. Now everyone's staying home with their children and they have higher estrogen levels, showing that it goes both ways, that you, the behaviors you choose can affect your physiology. And I thought that that was really crucial to a crucial part of this conversation. And I meant to throw that in when we talked about hormones, and I forgot. Mm. No, I love it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for presencing that. Uh, I was reading about hormones recently, and I was reading about how some of these stereotypically male activities can raise testosterone. Talking about being in competition and winning, apparently winning anything will give you a testosterone boost. And it's not just a male experience. No matter who you are, if you're competing and winning, you're going to get a little testosterone hit from that. That's interesting. I didn't know that. And of course, we're young in these studies, right? So who knows what else we will learn about related to all that stuff. There are two big things that come to me from that. One is that I think it's important to just acknowledge where there is validity to talking about hormones, it's just important to acknowledge it. Because I think that trying to yes. erase, trying to erase the effects of hormones, however subtle it may be, is missing a, a piece of the equation. And then the second part of it is being realistic about how much of the picture it really is. Because I think that's important too. Exactly. It's important in the picture, and it's not the whole picture. And if we were to say that hormones didn't matter at all, then why would I 
be on testosterone. <laughs> right? <laughs> it matters. It matters. It matters to me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show, Foster. I really appreciated your perspective. Where would you like people to go if they want to connect with you? Sure. The only thing that's said all remotely public facing or accessible would be Instagram. So there's two actually, because I have mine that it's it's okay. It's foster the person with periods, foster dot the dot person. I love that. Clever. I mean, I do really like the band. But the other one, the one that is a little more curated to tell a story is Dear Ellis and Louise. And that is one we've intentionally kept. It's a public account and it's about telling our story with having Ellison and opening that up for people who want to hear that story. Although the main goal for me personally with that is showing other trans people that you can have a family and be happy because there's like literally no representation of that whatsoever. And I guarantee you that every trans person has felt at least all the time that there's like little hope that they will have a normal life for have a family or be happy that that's like a a huge mental burden in the community right now so that's like a big part of what i'm trying to bring with that but it is open for everybody if anybody's curious about it that's about telling our story and we do feel some questions and stuff with that one so that's a big one dear ellis and louise also she's a really cute baby so yeah they just get to look at your phenomenally cute baby gosh she's so cute well on that note thank you so much for your time foster and your perspective and uh I'm really glad that you were able to join us today. Thanks for managing my rants. This was a pleasure. 